Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, I want to just to lift up a few things before we climb into your word and hear from you. Lord, first we want to pray for our government officials, those who, uh, especially those who are, who are among us, uh, that are serving in our community. Lord, we want to just entrust them to you and ask, ask you to give them uh, endurance as they serve. Um, Lord, give them wisdom uh, as they serve. Um, pray that you would give them um, a, a good stewardship with the decisions that they make. Lord, that the decisions that they make would make for a peaceful community where you can be enjoyed and you can be preached and uh, where people would want to live, people would want to stay. Uh, just pray that you would uh, bless those who are serving our community so well. Um, pray that they would uh, have a sense of meaning and purpose as they are serving us while loving you. We're entrusting them to you. Lord, also this morning, I want to lift up a, a local church. I want to pray for Grace Community Church. Uh, for Adam Brind and for his family, Lord, we just ask that that you would bless Grace, uh, that they would have uh, really um, wonderful problems of, of folks that you're drawing to faith, that you're drawing to be part of a local church, and that they would have uh, really tough decisions to make as they are trying to figure out how to, to make disciples. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom, that give them those problems in those, or wisdom in those problems that they would uh, equip the saints that they would raise up disciples uh, who would then um, do the same. Lord, we just ask that you would bless Adam and his family, Lord. I pray that you would bless the work uh, that he has put his hand to and his family, uh, those who are serving with him, Lord. I pray that you would bless them, that they would have a, um, a real unity as they work together, just entrusting grace to you, asking you to bless them. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for a people group. Uh, we're praying for, uh, specifically for believers in Beijing this morning, Lord. We are asking you to give the believers in Beijing uh, a boldness uh, about their, in their faith as they're walking out faith in a very uh, dark corner of the world. And many people who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would give them uh, opportunities to uh, enjoy you out loud as they work, as they move, as they live. We are entrusting our brothers and sisters in the far corners to you this morning and asking you to use them for your glory to draw people into your kingdom. Um, lastly, Lord, I pray for this time that we're going to spend together, these last few words that we're going to consider from Christ's prayer. I pray that your son would be enjoyed. I pray that you, as a good father, would be enjoyed. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to John chapter 17. These are the final words of a chapter-long prayer. The longest recorded prayer that we have from our Lord. Uh, there aren't a lot of recorded prayers from our Lord. Uh, in fact, this is... Uh, a pretty special chapter as we really get to hear a lot from our Lord as he prays to the Father. It's the final words of his long prayer before he leaves for the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested and led off to be crucified the next day. I, um, I like the thought of an introduction that's sort of a, an attention gainer, something that is interesting that it connects to you and your lives and this morning I really on purpose am just wanting to go to the context. I'm wanting just 
for us to just realize the profound moment that we're stepping into. A moment when our Lord is about to be arrested and tried in unjust trials and nailed to a piece of wood. The final words that he shares with his disciples before he goes off to be arrested. I feel like that's enough introduction. is just for us to consider the gravity of this moment. This evening's discourse, it began in chapter 13 where he's speaking to his disciples. And it goes from chapter 13 all the way through the prayer that ends with the verses we're looking at today. It began in chapter 13 with a Passover meal. The first Lord's Supper, we would call it, and it ends here with these final words. We don't know between chapters 13 and chapter 17 if there was a change of venue. There are little windows into the storyline there that give the sense that they may have moved to a different place before they went to Gethsemane from the supper. We don't know if there's a change of venue, but one thing we do know is that this is the evening of the cross. It is a profound evening, and it is very much, if you have a red-letter Bible, it is very red, beginning in chapter 13. You get the sense that these guys, 11 by this point, are in listening mode. Jesus is teaching, speaking, equipping before he goes to the cross. This is the evening of his cross and the culmination of a three-year ministry with, at this point, 11 really ordinary, unimpressive guys. Fishermen, tax collectors, Sinners, the epitome of ordinary common men. And men that are made of the same stuff that every single one of us is made of. Men of ambition. These men had just previously argued over the course of this evening about who would be the greatest. If you think these guys are somehow different from us, just consider, just for a moment, at least consider that. And realize this is us. It might as well have been us. Common Ordinary people. They weren't the best and the brightest. (laughs) Like I said, this is us. It's not a criticism. It's an honest, honest statement about who we are as a people. He's called the foolish things that confound the wise. And this is a table full of them. They were common men. They weren't the best and the brightest, but they were the Lord's. And he loved them. He called them to follow him. And here he prays over them. Finishing his prayer with these final words in verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As I've been studying these couple of verses, I realize that there's just a lot here. It's amazing how much is packed into these two short verses. I think what I want to do this morning, though, is draw out really four profound pronouncements. The tone of the prayer has changed by this point. Up to this point, it's been a series of petitions. Five of them, we've considered them over the last few weeks. At this point, there are no more petitions. This prayer at this point in these two verses is made up of declarations. Five profound Excuse me, four profound declarations and then a purpose that we're going to consider this morning. So that's the plan for the morning. If you kind of need a visual map, where are we going in these next few minutes? We're going to look at briefly four profound declarations and then a very, very important purpose 
at the very end. I'll give you a little map for passages that you might have handy. You might have handy John chapter 14. You might also have handy and just ready to turn uh, to possibly Matthew 3 and Matthew 17. Those are less important, but Matthew 14 might be handy. There may be a couple of other places in Matthew chapter 17. Since you're on that page anyway, I might have you look. Let's look at our four declarations. I'll tell you what they are so you kind of know where we're going in these next few minutes. The world does not know the Father, but Jesus does. And he has made him known, and he will continue to make him known. The world does not know the Father, but Jesus knows him. And Jesus has made him known, and he will continue to make him known. Let's start with this first declaration. The world does not know the Father. The world that we live in, the world that they lived in 2,000 years ago where this prayer was prayed over these men is no different. There's nothing new under the sun. We have to understand that world is this world. And that world and this world do not, did not know the Father. They don't understand his plans. They don't understand his purposes. They don't understand his character. They don't understand his name. What he says, I've come to declare and and, uh, expose his character. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't know his love. The world doesn't know how he's loved the world. Since the very beginning, the world has gotten God wrong. Adam and Eve in the garden were given a couple of commandments. The first commandment was take and eat from all of these trees. Turn around you. Look around, turn around and look around all these trees with ample fruit. Take and eat. That's the first commandment. And then there's oh, this little small commandment. Don't eat from that tree. And Adam and Eve got God wrong right out of the chute. Believing that God is somehow holding out on them in that one tree. Mm. That's the good stuff in that one tree. This ample garden full of trees must not really be the good life and the good stuff. It must be in this one because it's off limits. Adam and Eve, right out of the chute, got God wrong and considered him suspect. Shortly after that, Cain's world proved that that Cain's world got him wrong too. And resulted in the murder of his own brother. Noah's world too proved that they didn't know and understand God. Because Noah's world is characterized as eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And ignoring the preaching of Noah as he's preaching and building. They didn't get God. Babel didn't understand God. Babel was a world that just wanted to make a name for itself. Those ancient stories might feel like, yeah, those were pretty terrible moments in the history of the world, but then you fast forward to Israel where God has actually disclosed himself in a profound way in Israel to prove that they didn't understand and get God. The movement of Israel was characterized as whoredom. I mean, that's, that's kind of graphic. Whoredom described as laying with every foreign god under every green tree. Man, the world hasn't gotten the Father from the very beginning and consistently throughout. I had a plan to actually move on from that point and just sort of establish that that's enough for us. And I realized, man, I wonder if we aren't just completely numb to how dark this world is. I wonder if we have been so inundated with just this world and the message and the system and the thoughts of the world that we're just numb to it. And I realized, man, it might be worth us just considering a passage in Romans chapter 1. You can turn there if you like. You can just listen. 
This is a diagnostic passage. This is what a world looks like that doesn't get God. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Talking about a world 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote those words that also didn't get God. Listen to what he says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That's 2,000 years old, people. That's, that, that wasn't written this week. This world has missed God since the very beginning. 2,000-year-old message. The banner diagnostic is homosexuality. 2,000 years ago. Is there a TV show? Is there a, a social media outlet hardly in the world today that you can look at where you're not inundated with that message? It's acceptable. It's okay. This is the way we love. When each other. Love, love, love prevails. Love first. I can't remember what the saying is. Man, the world has, has missed God since the beginning, and we're just still in the middle of it right now. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, the diagnostic of a world that doesn't get God. Listen, let me, just in case you think we're talking about them, let me continue. Since they did not see, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers. If it, is anybody off limits by this point? Has anybody been caught up in anything yet that we realize we're not just talking about them and this old dark world out there, but that we're talking about us? Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I know we got everybody in here at some point in that. Foolish. Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. These are the symptoms of a world that doesn't know the Father. Moving in relationships that are completely contrary to nature. God has designed a man and a woman to be together and to procreate. And we're talking about relationships that don't even have that possibility. Complete bankruptcy. And that's the message that we're inundated with right now and apparently 2,000 years ago as well. There's nothing new under the sun. They lived in a world and we live in a world that does not understand the Father. That's the context here for what unfolds in these next statements. The world doesn't know the Father, but Jesus says, I do. I know him. The world doesn't know the Father, but I know him. Even though the world does not know you, he says, I know you. It seems it's real easy to read. It's just a few little words, and we can just move right on and not realize how important this is. Jesus has prayed along the lines of this knowledge of the Father already. Look at John chapter 17, if you're still there. Look at verse 11. Morris preached on this a few weeks ago, this oneness concept. In verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world. He's speaking about where he's about to go. To the cross, to the uh, resurrection, then eventually to the ascension. 
to be back with the Father. I am no longer in the world, but they are in this world we've been talking about, the world that doesn't know the Father. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. The world doesn't know you, but I know you because we're one. says it again down in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, not only these 11 around the table, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's y'all. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. He's speaking about this notion of oneness. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. thinking about how to illustrate this and man it's so hard to imagine illustrating the oneness of a father and his son and how the son could so know the father made me think about marriage when Morris preached on marriage he sent out an email that spoke of a relationship between he and Kendra these blurry lines where you're not sure where Morris leaves off and Kendra picks up this blurry oneness this experience that some of you, hopefully, most of you will experience in marriage someday. Where you look at your wife or you look at your husband and you feel like you're looking at yourself. Christy and I have been married 24 years and um, it's often that I'm caught up in that. Where I'm looking at her and I feel like she's the rest of me. And the best of me, to be really honest. She knows me more than anyone else in the world. And I know her better than anyone else in the world. And our marital union is described as just that. Oneness. Oneness. And the notion of a father and son that are so a part of each other, that are so one with one another, that we can get some glimpse into their knowledge and understanding of each other in the relationship between a husband and a wife. How well do you know your spouse? That's a beautiful picture. When he says, I know him, we can trust he indeed knows him because he and the Father are one. It's the second declaration. The first declaration is the world doesn't know you. The second declaration is, but I do. And the third declaration is that Jesus has made him known. I have made you known. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of something invisible. Just let that hit you for a minute. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of someone, some being that's invisible. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Thank the Lord he's invisible, right? But Colossians says, He, this Jesus that we're speaking of this morning, is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I was trying to think of an illustration that might kind of paint this picture of what it would be like for a son to be so much like his father. And I'm imagining a storyline where someone gets to know a son, a young man, for example, and someone spends time with this son, has never met his father, but his son is so much like his father when he eventually meets his father, he feels like he's known his father forever. The world doesn't know him. But Jesus says, I know him. 
And he says, I have made him known. A son so much like his father that if you know him, you know the invisible God. If you know the image, you've seen the invisible God. If you know the radiance of the glory of God in the person of Christ, you know the radiance of God the Father. If you've seen the Son, you have seen the exact imprint of an invisible Father that you cannot see and experience and live. I enjoyed an interchange in John chapter 14. I told you I'd like to that this is one that would be good for you to turn to and look at. It's just a few pages in front of that, so it's easy to turn to. This is on the night. This all took place in one night where this happens. Again, we don't know the context. If it was all over the supper as they sat at the table, but it was at some point over the course of that evening, beginning in John chapter 14, Jesus has just told them, I'm going to some place you can't go. You can't follow me. He's just told Peter that he's going to deny him. Peter says, I'll never do that. Chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me, believe also, or believe in God, believe also in me. That's synonymous. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to to where I'm going. And Thomas, the, the doubting apostle, says, wait a second, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him this beautiful response that we can all enjoy. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. I'm the destination, but I'm also the way there. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is what he says next. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him, this son that's so much like his father. If you know him, you know the Father. And then ordinary Phil. (laughs) Ordinary Phil responds and he says, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Phil, you're so ordinary Phil, did you hear what I just said? A patient, loving Savior says it again. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, oneness? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Lord, just show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus' response is, you're looking at him. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He has made him known. He disclosed and displayed the Father's character. He disclosed and displayed the Father's name what he's about, how he moves in his sermons, in his words, in his prayers, in his healings, in his touch. Do you read the Gospels that way? Do you read the Gospels encouraged that we have a father as displayed in the Son? that will touch a leper and heal him? Does anybody need to be encouraged with that thought that we have a a God that said, let there be light, and then galaxies hung in a moment? 
who takes the time to touch a leper? Who in what the world says is unclean? What the world even says and declares you have to declare yourself unclean. That Jesus shows us, makes him known by showing us what a God, what a father that we have, what a good father we have that will touch a leper, that will heal a blind man, that will heal the lame. This father is disclosed in the person and work of the son in his rebukes. As he's rebuked Pharisees for believing in something called conditional grace, that they somehow earned and deserved God's favor. Thankfully, God is on display, the Father's on display in the work of the Son as he rebukes Pharisees for thinking and moving that way. He has disclosed and displayed the Father in providing for people who just need to eat. Whether it's manna from the sky are fish and loaves on a hillside. Jesus has disclosed for us the character and nature of a really good father. You ever seen an adult, what I think is really cool, an older guy that has time for children, that has time to talk to a child? Says something about that guy, doesn't it? When Jesus puts the character of a God and the Father on display, when everybody's saying, his disciples are saying, hey, get those little kids away from Jesus. And he says, no, bring them here to me. Bring me the little children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Man, he's disclosing to us and displaying to us the character of our God and Father. When he washes these disciples' feet earlier in the evening, he's showing us the character and nature of the Father that we follow and serve and enjoy. When he climbs on a donkey's colt at the beginning of that week, he shows us the nature and character of a God who has come to serve and save. He discloses a father as the exact imprint of his nature. He discloses and displays the character of a father who leans over in the dirt too and scrawls something in the dirt when a bunch of guys are about to stone an adulteress. And he says the words, whoever's... Without sin, cast the first stone. He discloses the character of our Father when he turns to that woman. He says, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Go sin no more. What a great God. What a great Father. What a great Son for making him known. He says, I made him known. How could he not? As the image and the radiance and the exact imprint of the Father. The fourth declaration. The first was the world doesn't know you. The second one is I know you. The third is I've made you known. And the fourth is I will continue to make you known. Let me show you a progression in John chapter 17 so you might understand your part in this making him known. John chapter 17 verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There he is saying it again. I've disclosed your character, who you are, the kind of God that you are, the kind of father that you are. I've made your name known to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they've kept your word. Watch the football. The football is the word. They have kept your word. Now look at verse 14. I've given them your word, 
You just envision the, put the football pass to the sun. You, you go take this to them. You give this to them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, then keep your eye on the football. Now look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If the word that has been given him is the disclosure of the name and the character of the Father, if it was given to them and then they are giving it to others, then how do you think for a moment he's going to continue to make his name known? Turn around and look at the person next to you or the person in front of you or the person behind you. You're looking at him. As you share Christ with others, as you share Christ with your children, as you talk about Christ in your home, as you talk about him in your workplace, as you share him with your neighbors, with your friends, as you go to far corners and you share him, you're taking that word where it isn't. And you're making, continuing to make him known. You're continuing to make the Father known through the word and the message of the Son. And the Spirit innervates every bit of that. It's not a dead work. It's not something that you're just having to do that you just hope is going to find some purchase because we can trust and know that the word as it's sown does not return void. And we can know and enjoy the promise that was made to them in chapters 15 and 16. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to do this work. He's going to innervate and energize this thing I'm calling you to. Where this word and this seed actually gives life. There's a word that I looked up. It's a good word. It vivifies the work. The Holy Spirit vivifies the work of sharing his word so we can know it won't, turn, won't return void. It will and he will do the work of making his father known through the well-sown word and the work of the spirit through that. The world doesn't know you, but I know you. And I have made you known and I will continue to make you known. Those are the four profound pronouncements in this passage. As I was preparing for this sermon and thinking through those four things, I, I have a, a, a pattern of asking why. I have a daughter that's really profoundly fixed on why, why of everything. That's why she's such a student. She'll probably be a lifelong student, academia of some sort. Some of you are like that too. Some of you have kids that are like that. They say, why, 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 why? Well, I'm asking, is he doing these things as, as he is not known, as the world doesn't know him? And he says, but I know him, and I'm going to make you known, and I'm gonna get, I've made you known, and I'm continuing to make him known. I'm sitting there saying, why? Why are you going to do that? The why is answered in the rest of this passage, and it is a beautiful and profound answer. But I'm thinking, why? Jesus, why did you do this? Why did you submit to come and live and build furniture with an earthly father for any period of time, however long his father lived? Why did you submit to a manger? Why did you submit to being contained in a space about the shape of a baby? Why did you submit to those things? Why did you submit to a, a faulty earthly mother? Why did you experience hunger? Okay, in doing those things, in making him known, in making the father known, why did you do all those things? Why did you submit to hunger and sadness and grief. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Why did you do that? Why would you do that? Why did you call and walk with common men to follow you? Why did you pick what we might call the least likely to succeed? Why did you submit to betrayal and unjust trials one right after another? Why did you do that? Why did you let them trade you for Barabbas? 
Why did you stand there and let them shout, give us Barabbas? Why would you do that? It's, it's an important and great question, and it's answered here in a moment. Why did you submit ultimately to wood and nails and hours of heaving naked in front of God and country? In front of friends and family. That's what crucifixion is. Heaving naked until you die. It's a dry land drowning. You pull yourself up. That's the way you exhale. Until you just can't do it anymore. And you just die. Why would you do that? He answers the why in this passage and it's profound. It's so easy to read past and just keep on going. Let's read the passage again. Look at it. I want you to see this. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, that's the first thing. I know you. That's the second thing. And these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name. There's a third declaration. And fourth, I will continue to make it known. And then that, that little word that in the Greek language is a henna clause. It's an important clause. It's an in order that. It's for the purpose of. It's the answer of why did you do all this? What in the world are you up to in this whole thing? Why are you coming to disclose the character and name and nature of the Father? Here's the why, the big, fat, gorgeous why, that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay. The Son made and makes him known for a very specific purpose, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I've done all this in order that the love that my Father has for me may be in them and on them. I want you to just think about that for a minute. I don't want to breeze right on past that. I want to move right on past that. I have one point to make. One simple point. It's going to look at two different passages to sort of bring this out. But I want you to think about what I just said for a moment. That Jesus did this work of displaying and declaring the character and name of the Father, this invisible God, this imprint, this radiance, came and did what he does, declaring and making known the Father for a purpose. That why is actually answered right here. So that the love that our Father has for his Son may be the love that he has for you. Just let that hit you for a moment. Some of y'all probably have, uh, I'm thinking of folks in here that I'm sure have really good fathers. And it's probably easier for you in this, I'm talking about a father that loves his son to think about, man, that's, that's a beautiful love. I've enjoyed that kind of love my whole life. And a father that loved me in a way that was really wonderful. Some of you probably have some thoughts that are like, ugh, not so much. Either I didn't know my father or my father was not the kind of guy that had that kind of love for me. And I knew, never knew that kind of love. Both of you will be blessed by considering what we consider in these next few minutes. Because if you had a good father, even as good as he was, he pales to what we're about to look at. He pales to this beautiful picture and this reality of a father's love for a son now becoming a father's love for you. And if you had a terrible one, then you've got a beautiful encouragement right here of the kind of father that we have in our heavenly father. Okay, so just two brief windows. Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 17. 
Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 17. I, I think in some ways they are um, just windows into the love that our Father has for His Son. If Jesus is making declaration, this is what this whole thing is about. The world doesn't know you, but I know you, and I've made you known, and I'm going to continue to make you known, and I'm doing that for all one big fat purpose, that the love, Father, that you have for me may be in them and on them. Okay, that's a beautiful purpose. Let's, let's see if we can understand what that looks like. Here's the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, this is the Son I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm pleased. I'm just pleased. That word's, word means delighted. I, I'm delighted. I enjoy him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. This is my beloved son who I enjoy. Any of you have a father that enjoyed you? Any of you, as you're thinking right now, are thinking about a man that you knew enjoyed you. I'm talking really enjoyed you. Not tolerated you when you're a good boy. Not cheered for you when you were kicking butt on the football field. But I'm talking to a father that enjoyed you. Are any of you that father? That's the kind of father our father is for the son. He enjoys it. He delights in him. He is pleased with him. Look at Matthew 17. Beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. These radiance of the glory of God. Here's a little window into that. Uncovered, undialed down. And his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents. Here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. Man, I enjoy him. I delight in him. See, here's what I want you to hit. I want to hit you. Here's, I hope just, it just crawls all over you just for a moment. 
is the kind of love that we're seeing here of this father for his son. The reason that Christ came and disclosed the character and nature of the father to a world that doesn't know, didn't know him, to those giving him out of the world, you, is so you can be loved by this father that way. So he can enjoy you. He can delight in you. You. Does anybody else need that as much as I do? Man, is anybody else like reckon and deal with the stuff that you see all day? This message from Facebook. You know, social media drives me crazy. You see this message from Facebook. Everybody's taking great pictures. Every picture I take of myself look like a dud. Like, uh, I can't show that to anybody. I can't even take a good picture. Everybody's awesome. And there's me. I'm not talking about some sort of self-loathing. I'm just talking about a real honesty with myself. About 90% of the stuff I put my hand to, I feel like, ah, I could have done that better. I should have done that better. And to hear from a father, I'm delighted in you. I enjoy you. I'm pleased with you. Man, that's good medicine. And you know what? It's not because I did anything different. If any of you are encouraged by that notion, it's not because you're going to do anything different. There's only one thing that actually brings that sort of delight from our Heavenly Father. And that's union with Christ. That's trusting Christ with everything that you are, everything that you believe, that you trust him, that you believe him. He is who he says he is. He's the disclosure of the Father, and I'm going to love him. I'm going to look to the Son so that I can see and experience the Father. And guess what? That Father is going to delight in you on your best day. And here's the good news, too, on your worst day. He's pleased with you, period. Does anybody else need to hear that? Moms that are just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. You got a host of kids and they're like running off the rails. You hear from everybody else how great they are when you're not there. Moms, anybody know what I'm talking about? They're like, they were? You should see them at home. They're ripping each other's heads off. They're looking me in the face and doing exactly what I tell them not to do. Moms, you need that encouragement? He's pleased with you. He delights in you. He enjoys you as you're trusting Christ and trying to keep it in the middle of the road. Any other dads feel like, man, I don't know how I can do this thing, man. I got this, this job. I got these bills. I got this work situation. How do I, how do, I do this? You're just trying to, trying to navigate, just trying to keep going, just trying to plod. You know, you're plodding along. You need to be encouraged hearing our Lord through this message this morning say, I'm pleased with you. I delight in you. Man, I, I don't know about y'all, but I just needed to know that. I, I ride a roller coaster of self-disappointment. Not, again, not a self-loathing, just an, I feel like a maybe an honesty with myself. For the son to give us this encouragement this morning, for, this, for his prayer 
must have been an encouragement to these guys for the roller coaster that they would live out, that the Father is pleased with them as they are in union with the Son. The Son disclosed the Father to those giving them out of the world so that we would experience the Father's good pleasure. My, my ask this morning is a plea. It's a plea. And I'll have an ugly cry over it. Man, I really don't even care. It's a plea. Look to the Son. I'm begging you. Look to the Son and find that good pleasure from the Father as He looks on you and He sets His pleasure on you. The pleasure an earthly father has with his son or daughter really pales compared to the love that our Father has for us because of His Son and our faith in Him and our union with Him. We've become pleasing to Him, period. If you have not experienced this relief, Massive, massive relief of seeing and understanding that he has pleasure in you through the person and work of Christ. I beg you, trust him and follow him today. Let's pray. God, I am so, so thankful that you have disclosed displayed and declared and made known your name and your character in the person of the Son. Lord, we are so thankful that you sent him to take on flesh and that he obeyed. We're so thankful that he is the exact imprint of your nature, that he's the radiance of your glory. We're so thankful that he's not some pale version, but he is the exact representation Lord, we're thankful that we can see you in him. Lord, I cannot believe, I cannot believe you set your love on us if we find your son awesome. I cannot believe that you find pleasure in us when we just delight in this son. Because it seems so easy right now. What a scandal. What a great father you are. Lord, I pray for those moms, those dads. I pray for those young singles, your young adults trying to navigate life. I pray for our young teens as they're facing heavy dose of the world. I pray for our kids as they're trying to make sense of this world. I pray for our older folks that are um, guiding families, guiding grandchildren, working through family problems and dealing with health issues. Lord, I pray in all of this that we can look to the sun. Every single bit of this, I pray we can look to the sun. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.